the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I almost said the Monday show because it feels like Monday, but it's not. It's Tuesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you know, this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is call 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them using our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. I trust you had a wonderful Christmas, and your services in church were were great. Um, um, you know, you, when church falls on a, a Christmas or Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday, you never know whether a lot of people are going to be there or not. We had a lot of people here on Sunday. It was really a good time. I was just telling my producer here that, I really like it best when Christmas or Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday. It just makes it so simple to stay on target. And and we had a wonderful time here Sunday, so I trust that you did as well. Now it's time to get ready for a new year. And uh, as I always tell our church, we want to make it your most Jesus year ever. Well, let's get to questions while we await your phone calls. Our first question comes in from... I don't know why I'm not getting a... This one is from Anonymous. Um, Do you think that we should use the Lord's Prayer when we pray every day? I've been trying to get better at praying, but I feel like I'm just talking to myself sometimes. How do you pray? Thank you for your help. Anonymous, great question, because the Lord really and truly wants to hear your prayers. Um... All you have to do is talk to him. And one of the things that I've done is I've tried to make prayer even more um, conversational. Uh, the, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, Jesus gave us that prayer as a model. But it's not something that we're supposed to do just to um, be repeating ourselves. The, the idea of the repetition Um, there's no value. Jesus makes that really, really clear. Now, here's what the Lord's Prayer will do. I'm going to refer you to um, um, our our website, calvaryessay.com. When I actually taught the Lord's model for prayer, and that's what it is. It's not the Lord's Prayer. It's his model for prayer. When you pray, say, his disciples had asked him, teach us to pray. And when we do that, what we, we, we find out is it's sort of an outline. And what we allow then the Holy Spirit to do is to to fill in the blanks, 
Uh, he sort of puts meat on those bones, and, and it will give you wonderful, wonderful direction in prayer. Uh, our Father, which art in heaven. I mean, you got to really take that slowly. Uh, is he really your Father? Are you a born-again Christian? That he lives in heaven. That Then we can trust that he's above our circumstances. So there's a whole lot of things. Give us this day our daily bread. We can learn to be content, and we can pray, Lord, give me what I need. Not what I want, but give me what I need. So it's a wonderful model for prayer. But just the value in repeating it is negligible. So here's what you do. You understand that the Lord's Prayer, we pray it, and then you let the Holy Spirit fill in the blanks. Now, having said that, I think we make prayer so mystical. We make it really difficult. Nobody ever feels like we're praying enough. The enemy, of course, when you begin to pray, is going to attack you. Um, and, and there's an element, a large element of faith that's involved in prayer. So here's what you do. You just talk to Jesus. You just talk to him. That's all we do. It's all we need to do. It's what he wants us to do. And we talk to him as a friend. He calls us a friend in the Gospel of John, in the Upper Room Discourse. So when we talk to him like some distant God, dear heavenly majestic Father God. No, we talk to Jesus. Jesus came to reveal the character, the nature of the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father, is what Jesus said to his disciple. So you talk to him, and you talk to him as you talk to a friend. Now, obviously, there's going to be some reverence. There's going to be a healthy fear of God. I understand all of that. It's not like he's your best buddy, but he's your friend. And you get to know him, you talk to him, and that takes a lot of time. So that's what I do. You know, the truth, Anonymous, is that I don't know anybody who is content with their prayer time. So take the pressure off and just talk to him in your normal voice. You don't have to change your voice inflection. You don't have to get louder. You don't have to to have a certain cadence to your prayer. You certainly avoid saying things over and over, dear heavenly Father, Lord. We don't need to say all of those things. Make it comfortable and talk to him that way. Now, here's one thing I can tell you, just because you've revealed your heart in this email. When you say, I've been trying to get better at praying, Jesus is the one who's giving you the, the, the biggest round of applause. It's what he wants. And he just wants you to spend time with him, understanding that he's God. He is your Lord. He's your Savior. Our hearts are filled with gratitude. However, he's also our friend. And if you talk to him like that, it truly will change everything. And so when you change those things, the reality is going to be that um, you'll find yourself eager to talk to him. Carry the conversation all day. The Apostle Paul, writing to the churches in Thessalonica, he said that we're to pray without ceasing. Another translation, the NIV says, to pray continually. And that doesn't mean that we're on our knees all day, every day, and we're using King James language. What it means is that we talk to him all day long. And I've, I just, when I did my, I referred you to our website uh, for the Lord's Prayer. Go to the, the Gospel of Matthew, find that chapter. It, it transformed my personal prayer life, teaching that uh, the Lord's Prayer. And I did one week on, on every element of it. And it transformed my personal prayer life. And it's just taken sort of all the pressure off. So, uh, that's what it's done for me, Anonymous. That's what I hope and pray that it will do for you as well. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from, let me get another one. This one came in from, I'm having a little bit of computer issues here. So um, this one is from Grace. Love your name, Grace. Uh, hello, Pastor Ron. My husband and I pray for you and your church, and we are so blessed by what y'all do. <laughs> Thank you. With the new building project in the works, could you share some stories on God moving on your behalf? I'm sure he's doing great things right now for this church, 
and I'm excited to see it. Grace, thanks very, very much. And it seems that you don't go to this church, so thank you very, very much for praying for us. It means more to us and to me personally than you can possibly imagine. One of the problems that we always have, Grace, is money. When you do everything for free, you don't have any money. And so what we did, we entered into an agreement with this new building, and we've seen God move at just the right time, providing for the money that we needed at the time. Now, obviously, we don't have the money that we need to do all of the reconstruction. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to think that, well, if God's in it, you know, he's going to give all the money. That's what my hope and prayer is. Lord, let today be the day. But the reality is, this building has stretched us and tested our faith perhaps more than anything else that we've done. I think that's safe, more than anything else that we've done. We, we're aware of how much money it's going to cost. We don't have it. We've got a deadline. We've got to be in that new building by July of 2024. Time's coming. But, but here's what we've learned. We've learned that every step of faith God asks us to take grace, every single step of faith means that we're going to be tested. And we're being tested. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says, It's required that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful. This is no exception. You know, I'd like to think that we've had all of these steps of faith in the free school, the free doctor's office, we're in a free restaurant, we got a manor house uh, that we don't charge people for a, a place for, for women who have struggled or are struggling. Um, um, everything that we do is free. And, um, you know, you think, well, okay, we've already passed all those tests. And God says, no, 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 there's a test with every single move. And I think that's what we've got to be, um, you know, expect rather than just to think God's going to do something. I can say this, Grace, that that the money that we've had to spend so far, money that we didn't have, um, God has provided, I mean, within just dollars of the amount that we needed. I'll just give you one example. Um, de- deconstructing the building. There was a lot of stuff that was left in there. Deconstructing the building um, was expensive. Um, I- I'm guessing it was forty four, forty five thousand dollars, and and the first estimate was like thirty four thousand, and and so we said, okay, go ahead, deconstruct it, get it done, and and we paid what we could when we got a bill. Of course, we paid it, and and uh, th- there was a, the the old tenant left a generator in the back, a, a big generator. So if you don't have any power, you can still function and all that. And, you know, obviously we don't need that. We couldn't use that. And so uh, we started checking around, and and, and here we, we know $34,000 is coming due. And uh, somebody came around and, and made an offer to buy that generator for $34,500. So we see stuff like that all the time, and it just it's just Jesus saying, you know, I'm in this, I'm in this. But believe me, our faith, grace, is being tested, and I think every single Christian ought to expect those kind of tests. It is required, 1 Corinthians 4.2 says. And so we need to pass the tests, and the fact that we've passed them in the past has no real value for the future at all. So all of that to say, I covet your prayers. I thank you for following uh, what we are doing. And uh, I'm sure without any doubt that there are going to be some wonderful stories that God is going to show up just on time. We're praying right now, Grace, that he'd show up early, but typically he doesn't do that. And let me do one other quick thing. Uh, last year, um, gosh, my time frames are so off. You get old and time goes so fast. Um, but 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 my administrative pastor, Pastor Matt, um, we made him a pastor. I don't know, a year ago, year and a half ago, something like that. And and I knew that that the Lord was leading him to do this, and and uh, so we're going through the process. And uh, I've always sort of been the administrator here. And, uh, and uh, you know, he's just perfectly suited for the job. Well, I can tell you this, that when we started this building project, there is no way in the world that I could have done all of the work that he's been able to do. And we just sit back and look back and say, God, at just the right time, you sent exactly the right person. And those are the kinds of stories 
that we get over and over and over and over. So, yeah, I, I, I fully believe that God is going to keep doing things, but we would love for all of you to pray. Grace, throw in your prayers as you're praying for us daily. Uh, throw in your prayers that God would provide everything that we need financially to get into that building and get it done, constructed by July of next year. We're out of this place by then, so we got to have somewhere to go. Thanks very much, Grace. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from uh, Anonymous again. Oops, no, I had that one. I don't know why I'm not finding the other prayer. Um, this is from Miguel. Hello, Pastor. I heard this question and would love to hear your answer on it. In Genesis 22, God tested Abraham by asking him to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. Can God ask men to do something that is sinful? And how could God obey, or I'm sorry, how could Abraham obey God's direction to sin? Miguel, this is a question that comes up a lot. I mean, this is so unthinkable that God would ask anyone to do this. But here's what we need to remember. God is sovereign. God knows the end from the beginning. God knows what his plan is for Abraham. God knows what his plan is for you, Miguel. And this was nothing more than a test. God never was going to require Abraham to suffer or to sacrifice Isaac. Of course, that that is an abomination to God. That could never happen. But here's what was going on. Um, Isaac was a teenager at this point. You know, we often picture him in the children's stories as being a young boy. That's not the case. He was a uh, a young man um, um, when when he and his father began the the three day journey to what we now know as uh, Calvary. Um, um, they they really had to work it out. At some point, uh, Isaac said, "Father, we've got everything that we need for the sacrifice, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice?" And Abraham's response by faith, just a revelation from the Lord. It took him three days to come to it. Three days of wrestling with this impossible task. Abraham's response was, God will provide himself a sacrifice. In other words, don't worry. Now, here's the process for three days, and we know this from Hebrews chapter 11. We know that Abraham had to wrestle with this. Imagine what his response was when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac. And evidently the nature of the test was that uh, that, that uh, Abraham had begun to put Isaac in a position uh, of priority over the Lord. You know, the giver of the gift is the one that should be worshipped and, and, and uh, Abraham's head and heart was turned. And we understand that. We understand how we feel about our kids. Imagine for Abraham, he had this child of promise, this miraculous, this impossible son. And for three days, he had to reason whether or not God could lie or whether he was going to actually kill his son. And for that three-day journey, the impossible time... Abraham had to deal with every eventuality and the, the, the result he came up with, the conclusion he came up with was that, that, well, if I kill him, God's going to raise him from the dead because God said that the whole world would be blessed through Isaac. So that's all it was. It was a test. God never intended for him to do such a thing. And if we forget that, then we focus on the, the cruelty of what God was asking uh, and, of course, if God would have required a child sacrifice, then that would have been um, a disqualifier. It would have demonstrated God really wasn't holy and just at all. But remember, God always knew what he was going to do. And he tested Abraham. And Abraham had to, to, to choose. Is it possible for God to lie? Or is it more likely that God will raise him from the dead if this is what I do? And, of course, we knew he grabbed the knife and, and in an instant God said, do not lay a hand on the lad and uh, out of nowhere appeared a lamb for the sacrifice. So, Miguel, that's what was going on. We need to 
remember the character of God, the nature of God. We need to remember the love of God for Abraham and for Isaac. We need to remember the promises God made. And this was simply a gut check for Abraham. Abraham, who do you love more? Do you love me more or do you love Isaac more? You've got to choose. Remember, God will never let us put anybody ahead of him. So that's exactly what the nature of this test was all about. Great question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jack. I know that you teach there will be a rapture, but what do you say to those Bible teachers who say there is no such thing as a rapture? Jack, when we come back from our Christmas and New Year's break, I have a pastor's discipleship class, and this is going to be the very first topic that we deal with uh, at the uh, at, in that pastor's discipleship class. We do it every single year because I want people to understand exactly what the Bible says. And so that's what I'm going to, 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 to use to answer you right now as well. So what do I say to those who say there's no such thing as a rapture? My response to them is all they have to do is read the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Listen, this is the Apostle Paul. I tell you a mystery. Uh, the, the, the idea that this is a ministry, mystery is that this is something that hadn't yet been disclosed. It'd been hinted at. Jesus spoke about it. But, but it was a, a mystery now ready for the fullness of revelation. So here's what he says. We will not all sleep. That's a euphemism for die. We know that uh, in part from John chapter 11 when uh, Lazarus is raised from the dead. Lazarus is asleep. Well, his disciples said, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. And and Jesus said, no, Lazarus is dead. So he says, we will not all sleep or die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead, those already dead, will be raised imperishable. And in contrast, it says, and we, who's the we, we who are still alive, will be changed. So in an instant, we're going to be caught up at the last trumpet. Now, the, the last trumpet doesn't mean the trumpet judgments. The last trumpet means the call to readiness. When God was calling Israel, when it was time to get up and depart, there would be a trumpet blast It would sound. That's the last trumpet. Let's get up and go. Well, in this particular case, this is the, the mystery, uh, uh, the, the, the blessed hope of the church. We're not going to die. Paul was pre tribulation in his rapture eschatology. He expected the Lord would come in his lifetime over and over and over. He said it. And so there's the promise of the rapture of the church. I don't know how somebody would uh, would explain that. Now, that's not enough for you. Then we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, again, we who are left behind, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. In other words, we know in in 1 Corinthians, we've got, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, we've got uh, to be absent of the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Um, so the, the people that have died are already with the Lord. We're not going to go before them. And then he says this. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, one of the reasons for this letter was that the the rumors were circulating, false teachers were were circulating in and around Thessalonica, saying, well, we we know the Lord's coming, but, but what about those who died before he came? And the false teachers were saying, well, they just missed out. I guess they just, they just miss out on heaven. And Paul is saying, no, that's not true. They're going to rise and be with Jesus first. Um, people that I love, people that have gone to be with the Lord already, they got there before I did. But then he says this, verse 17. After that, we who are still alive, again, the Apostle Paul expected that he would be alive when the Lord called his church home. After that, we who are still alive and are left 
will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And he closes the chapter by saying, therefore encourage each other with these words. If there's no rapture, and if we're all going to go through the great tribulation, there's no place for encouragement there. Jesus said that we should pray that we be counted worthy to escape the great tribulation. Well, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Now, the word for caught up, and I get a lot of flack because the word rapture is not in the Bible, but it really is. The Greek word for caught up is harpazo. And it means a sudden snatching away. And where we're going to be snatched away is in the clouds to meet the Lord near. He's not coming here for his church. He's going to call us to be with him. Jesus said that that was what was going to happen. They didn't understand it when he said it, but when Paul taught it, it's a fuller teaching. So, you can't get around these verses. First Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. The rapture is taught. The rapture is the blessed hope of the church. The rapture is the means by which we will escape the great tribulation that is going to come upon all those who live on the face of the earth. And it is a vital doctrine. If you don't believe that the Lord is coming, then you're not going to live a life that's going to be fruitful for the kingdom of God. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, 340-9585. That's area code 210 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Uh, here's an anonymous question. These always break my heart. Uh, He says, my daughter is in love with an unbelieving man. He is a good guy, but not saved. What can I tell her regarding a relationship, possibly marriage, with this man? Um, Anonymous, I'm going to go right to the, the root of the problem. This is something you need to be able to do. Ask your daughter if she's saved. Now, every parent wants to think, especially if you raise them in church, we want to think that our kids are saved. But remember, they have to make a decision for Jesus Christ on their own. And and that's a conversation. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And it's real easy to tell your daughter, the Bible says, not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And marriage, of course, is the most intimate, the most important relationship to make sure that we're equally yoked. And then it's a great opportunity to have a conversation with her. And I know you're in love with her. I know you're involved emotionally with this guy now. But how do you reconcile choosing him over Jesus? Ask her the question, why would you want to be in a relationship with somebody who's not going to be in heaven with you forever? And then you can tell her what I'm going to tell you now, that the single greatest pain that I deal with consistently over 28-plus years now of ministry, is people who are in unequally yoked relationships. The pain is overwhelming. And nobody ever escapes it. It starts out, you know, love is a feeling and we're all excited and he's the best ever, but, but he's not a believer. And you're going to spend your life in pain with a man who isn't going to be in heaven. Why would you want to do that? And it's a wonderful opportunity then for you to be able to talk with her about these things. Don't get angry. Just talk to her reasonably. How would you explain, I would ask her, how would you explain to Jesus that you're willfully involved with a man that he says isn't good for you? That's how important it is. And as a father... And and her mother, you don't want her to suffer. You don't want her to be in pain. I can tell you that no unequally yoked relationship escapes that pain. 
So that's what I would tell her. And I would use this opportunity to, to find out first if she's really saved. And, and if she says, well, I am saved, well, then why would you do this when you know Jesus is telling you not to do it? So I hope that makes sense to you. And, and uh, pray, 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 pray for her. Let's go to line one, Andy from San Antonio. Andy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, thanks for having me. I just had a quick question, um, trying to get more in the Word uh, as a Christian, especially, I guess, in the book of Revelation and when it comes to God's judgment. And I guess my question is, um, when we die and we have to face God in the judgment, um, do Christians have to account for all the words that we've said, or are we going to be held accountable for all of that and all our sin? Um, because that's terrifying, number one. Yeah, it is. You're right. Does, does, right? Or does Christ, you know, blood and his sacrifice cover that so I don't have to worry about the the sins that, that I've committed? Andy, it's a wonderful question, and I have good news and bad news for you. The good news is that the blood of Jesus covers all of your sins, past, present, and future sins, sins you don't know anything about. His sacrifice is a once-forever sacrifice covering all of your sins. Now, the, the question is, are we going to give an answer for or give account of the idle things that we say, the foolish things that we say? And the answer to that is also yes. It's not a matter of salvation for the believer, but it's a matter of rewards. First Corinthians chapter 3, Romans chapter 12, talks about the Bema Seat of Christ. The baby seat of Christ, the reward seat. It's where we're going to go and we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to receive or lose rewards. First Corinthians 3 says that the, the things that we do are going to be tested to see whether they have any value, whether they're good or good for nothing. And Jesus is going to want to give you these crowns, these rewards, and, and there are going to be some crowns that you're not going to be able to receive because we persist in doing sinful things. The sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. So the judgment for believers, and this is just for believers, the judgment for believers is a judgment of our works. Did they bring God glory? What was our motive? And again, were they good or good for nothing? That's the best description that I can give of those works. And I think, yeah, there's going to be a time of sadness. I think uh, there, there are going to be tears right after that. We're told that he'll wipe away every tear. And I think there's going to be things that we're shame, ashamed of. And Jesus is going to wrap his arms around us, figuratively speaking, and he's going to say, all of it covered by the blood. And then, of course, we'll fall down in gratitude and worship. But you're right. It would be absolutely terrifying if we had to give account of every idle word or if the sins kept piling up when, in fact, uh, all we have to do, all we have to do is keep short accounts with the Lord. Andy, one of the things that you ought to, to just always keep in, your, in the forefront of your mind and heart every day is First John chapter 1, verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, now confession isn't just saying the words. Confession is literal agreement with God. God, that was a sin. I knew it was a sin. I did it anyway. Please forgive me. And the rest of 1 John 1, 9 says, he will forgive us of our sins and purify us. I love that verb. He'll purify us from all unrighteousness. And that way, by saying we're sorry, God, I don't want to do that anymore. Then we have kept short accounts with the Lord and we always have access to the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. The, the, the sin that's in us is wiped away, and we have complete and total access to the Lord all over again. So don't worry about that. What you want to do is hate your sin. When you say something that's, that's wrong, when you uh, get angry at somebody, you lose your temper, uh, when you, you choose for time to hold on to unforgiveness rather than being willing to forgive, and you can learn to hate those things. And when you hate those things, then the Lord is always there with you and says, it's almost like he's walking with you and saying, you know, I hate those things too. Because when you do those things, I can't hang out with you. And that's exactly why he died. So it's very, very important. Those judgments, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 12, and I've got extensive studies on both of those passages on our website, calvaryessay.com, Andy. And uh, it's, it's very encouraging. One of the things that I've learned in my years with Jesus is that um, the, the more I'm aware of my sin, the more grateful I am to God. 
for the scope of his forgiveness. Now, Andy, are you still with us on the air, Andy? No, Andy hung up. But Andy, you're talking about reading about the reading Revelation. Um, really dig into the Word. I can tell your heart you really want to be right with the Lord. Um, the more time you spend the Word, the richer your life will be, the richer your relationship with Jesus will be, and the more joy because of the fruit that you will produce, the more like the fruit of the Spirit your life will appear. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are the kinds of things that we want to be described. You'll get to that in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will transform your heart, and you're already there, Andy. I could just tell it by the, the way that you're, you're, uh, you want to please the Lord. So good for you. Good for you. I think 2024, Andy, is going to be a really, really great year for you. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question. This one is from Jacob. He says, Colossians makes it seem like Jesus was the one who created everything. Was Jesus the one who said, let there be light and the rest? If so, what is the role of God the Father? If Jesus is the creator and the sustainer and the Holy Spirit gives his power and seals us, what is the role of the Father? You've assessed Colossians accurately, Jacob. Um, Jesus is the one who said, let there be light, and there was. Jesus is the active power ingredient in holding all things together. Um, you know, it's interesting. Peter talks about a time when the earth and, and the heavens are going to melt and fire is going to destroy everything. That's because Jesus is going to let go, and the new heavens and the new earth will then be created. But that is exactly what Colossians says. Uh, Hebrews also makes reference to that as well. So Jesus is the active power ingredient in creation, in holding all things together. One of the reasons we have to worry about climate change or or any of the other nonsense that the world is terrified of is because Jesus is going to hold everything together. And he's going to hold it together at least until he comes back and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives uh, that, that uh, ends the Great Tribulation and ushers in the Millennial Kingdom. So, yes, Jesus is the one. So what's the role of the Father? Uh, the role of the Father is he is the idea. He's the one who, and, and this isn't exactly accurate, uh, Jacob, but Jesus is the one to whom the Father spoke. Said, let, uh, just make there be light. So Jesus said, let there be light, and there was. So this was a cooperative partnership between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and and the 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 logos of God, the Father, was the idea. Jesus was the the active ingredient. The Holy Spirit, of course, also had His role in creation as well. So that's what it is. The the Holy Spirit seals us. The Holy Spirit provides power. But remember, the Holy Spirit is taking His orders from Jesus. Great question, and you. Are reading Colossians. I'm actually on Friday nights in Colossians right now, and um, we're talking about that. We've already talked about that in chapter one. We get to chapter two, there'll be uh, even more. Good question. Here's an anonymous question What does it mean that the dead will be raised? Are you talking literally that the dead will be walking around? Um, anonymous, when we talk about the dead being raised, it means raised to life. Now, I want to be specific with you. We who are Christians will never die. These old bodies will give out. My, my body is living proof of it. But these old bodies give out, but we never die. The real person, the spirit person in us belongs to Jesus Christ. And, and we've been given eternal life. So we will not die. People that die apart from Christ, they're going to die physically, they're going to die spiritually. The rest of us, while our bodies will wear out, we, our bodies physically are going to die. The instant before that happens, then we'll be taken directly in the presence of the Lord where we will live forever. So when it means the dead will be raised, it means that we will have a resurrection body. The Apostle John says, we don't yet know what that is, but we know this our bodies will be like his glorious resurrected body. Physical, but there will be a, a, a molecule
spiritual change will, will be like Jesus was able to walk through walls and they want to instantly go from one place to another. Our bodies are going to be like that. So that's what it means when it says the dead will be raised. Now, when it talks about those in the uh, rapture question that I had at the beginning, the dead will be raised first. It just means that they have gone to be with the Lord first. So if you are a born-again Christian anonymous, you will never die. Your body's going to hurt, and you're going to moan, and you're going to groan, and eventually it's going to give out. Everybody dies unless the rapture of the church comes first. But what it means is that the real us never dies and will be in the presence of the Lord forever and ever and ever. So that's what I mean. Literally, it's not like dead the zombies are going to be walking around. It's that we're going to be taken out of these bodies and we're going to live forever in a body just like Jesus Christ. Wonderful, wonderful promise. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's an interesting question. It's anonymous. Um, Upon reflection, what should we have learned from the pandemic? And would there be anything that you would do differently? Um, I can only guess at the motivation of your question, so um, I'll, I'll do the best that I can. I think we all, we all should have learned a lot uh, from the pandemic. I think we should have learned to trust God. I was shocked, uh, even heartbroken, at the number of Christians who lived in terror, um, overwhelmed, overcome by fear. Um, we stopped thinking reasonably. We stopped uh, trusting the Lord. Um, we we were guilty Christians, just like unbelievers were guilty of panicking. And I, I think one of the things that we should have learned is that God is faithful. Uh, God wasn't shocked by the pandemic. God wasn't caught off guard by the pandemic. Uh, and, and we need to know that God is good and God is in control, even when it appears as though the world is falling out of control. Um, when you ask, would there have been anything I would have done differently? Um, I wouldn't have closed at all. Uh, we were we were down for nine weeks. Um, our governor asked us um, uh, at the very beginning, and nobody knew what the pandemic was. I, I give myself a lot of grace here because nobody knew what this this disease, this virus was, uh, and the horror stories, the scare stories were were enormous. Um, but we, we closed for nine weeks. We, we, we conducted our services online. There were only eight of us, I think, in the sanctuary worship team, Paula and, and uh, our announcer. Um, we, we were in the sanctuary and kept everybody else out. I wouldn't do that again. In fact, I'll never close again. Uh, in a time like the pandemic, it's when we need one another. And I was uh, an exhorter. I challenged our people to really trust God and to believe God. And the minute our governor said churches can start meeting again, we started meeting. Now, we got a small building, um, and so and, and there's a lot of people in our small building. So we couldn't possibly social distance. Um, it just wasn't, wasn't possible. Uh, we gave people the option to wear masks, whether they wanted to or not. Uh, I got a lot of heat for that. Um, there were a lot of people who, who, who thought I was being reckless. Um, but the reality is, is that we, we really learn to trust the Lord. And the only thing that I would do differently, I think, at this point is is um, I've made this come uh, this promise to the church. As long as I'm here, uh, we will never let anybody close us again. Uh, it's that simple. Um, government, it doesn't matter. The church must meet. Do not forsake the assembling together of the saints uh, in people's greatest time of need, in their greatest time of fear and confusion, the church, and I'll be very personally accountable for this, Calvary Chapel of San Antonio wasn't there for the people we love. Now, we corrected it as quickly as we could, but at the same time, um, we will never close again. So I hope that makes sense to you. Here is another anonymous question. What kind of rewards will we receive in heaven? You know, we don't know. Crowns of life, crowns of righteousness. Uh, we, we don't know what that means. 
Um, you know, Magic Rock, we're going to throw those crowns down at the feet of Jesus. So, so we understand that he is our reward. But the rewards that we receive will be manifest in, in those crowns. And we're not really given a whole lot of information about it. So uh, we have to, to, to take Paul's word that, that God will do more than we can ask or imagine. i got a pretty big imagination. And I know heaven and the rewards are going to be greater than anything this little brain of mine can come up with. You know, one of the things, Anonymous, that I, I, I often think about is the look on Jesus' face. You know, we, we sometimes think of God as he wants to crush us or he's going to be angry at us or he's petulant like humans. But you know what? The truth is, from cover to cover in our Bibles, God is disclosed as, as a God who wants to bless us abundantly. And I, I, I just imagine often the look on his face when he hands me a crown. When he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I, I tell our church all the time that I'll be happy if he says, nice try, Ron. But the reality is that that he wants to bless us. He wants to reward us. And I think we don't think of him that way often enough. We think, oh, oh God's going to be angry at me if I miss church or if I don't read the Bible, if I don't pray. God is crazy about you. And I think personally the greatest reward that any of us will ever see is the smile of Jesus when he hands us those crowns and says, thank you. And make no mistake, that's exactly what he's going to say. So that's all we know about the rewards. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Raymond. Uh, Raymond says, boy, this time's gone fast in the second half, inside five minutes. Raymond says, since sacrifices no longer exist, how do Jews today believe they are saved? Um, Raymond, Jews don't have the same concept of salvation that we do. Uh, They think they're going to heaven because they're God's people. God gave them his law. Uh, They are set apart, uh, a special people. Um, What they don't understand is those are the promises that were given to national Israel. Individual Jews need to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul's ministry was built upon. That's what Jesus said when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And, And Jesus was always dealing with Jews who'd put him to death. We know that Judas was a Jew. He wasn't saved. Annas and Caiaphas, they were Jews. They murdered the Lord. They manipulated. They had false witnesses. So um, what Jews do today on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, uh, they, they use it as a day of reflection. So instead of sacrificing animals, now we need to remember that the Bible makes it clear in the law of God without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or no forgiveness of sins. And so what they've done, because there isn't a temple and sacrifices aren't being made, they've turned the Day of Atonement, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, they've turned it into a day of reflection. And figuratively, what they do is they take those sins, they reflect on them, they they mourn or grieve over their sins, and then reflectively, symbolically, they throw them into the deepest, darkest ocean. And then they believe that their sins are forgiven or their sins are covered over. The problem is we know that's not the case. So that's why you'll see Jews who try to be really good, to try to do good things. You'll see uh, Jewish people, successful Jewish people, who give away fortunes, tons and tons of money, because they want to do something good. It's sort of like they're, they're building up an account in heaven against their sin. And so that's what they try to do. They try to to, to be good and do good, uh, which in and of itself, those are good things. But but then they reflect, again, the problem is without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And um, Jesus Christ and his blood is the only avenue for being forgiven at all. So Raymond, hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Let me see what I got for time here. Two minutes. Okay, let me try a quick question. Uh, here's a quick one I can do. Michelle, uh, why does the devil keep fighting God since he knows Scripture and how it will end up for him? 
Michelle, I say all the time here at Calvary Chapel, sin is insane. Period. There's no reasonability at all uh, about why the devil keeps fighting. Um, we're told in Scripture that he knows his time is short and he's getting angrier and angrier, and we can see him turning up the heat. But the reality is that that um, sin still thinks it can find a way to win. There's still something in 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 Satan, this this magnificent creature created by God. There's still something in him that says, "I will cast my throne above the Most High." And while he knows the end. He's trying to change the end. And I think the minute we think, well, that's insane. He knows better. He knows it. Well, the truth is, as Christians, many of us, we know what to do and don't do it. We know how it's going to end. And we don't live our lives today like we know how it's going to end. And the only answer, Michelle, is that sin is absolutely insane. There's no value whatsoever in knowing something and not doing it. And the devil, who is far more powerful, far smarter than any of us, uh, if if he's confused, then certainly we're going to be confused as well. So that's the only way to answer that question. Thank you. I appreciate it, Michelle, very, very much. Hey, you've been listening to the Tuesday program of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, trying to get my brain and my body back on schedule. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it more than you know. I also want to, you that are praying for us, thank you so very, very much. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.